John's Gospel, chapter 18, verses 39 and 40 say, But ye have a custom that I should release unto you one at the Passover. Will ye therefore that I release unto you the king of the Jews? Then cried they all again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Several decades ago, a famous evangelist was driving through a small southern town on his way to a preaching meeting. He was picked up by radar in what was, uh, well, I guess we could fairly call it a speed trap. Several miles he was going over the speed limit. Squad car pulled him over. Uh, It was one of those situations where the policeman didn't simply step out, write him a ticket. He said, I want you to follow me into town. And so he did, almost like a scene out of the old Andy Griffith show. He was taken to see the justice of the peace, who was busy working at his barber shop. Well, the preacher, the police officer, they waited while the barber slash justice of the peace finished giving a haircut. And then the justice of the peace turned to the police officer and said, what happened? He said, this man was going certain number of miles over the speed limit. He looked at the preacher and said, how do you plead? He said, guilty, Your Honor. The preacher answered, or rather the uh, Justice of the Peace answered, that will be $15. That tells you how long ago this happened. Then the Justice of the Peace said, say, you look familiar to me. Aren't you a preacher? Well, the evangelist was rather embarrassed to be caught in such a circumstance, concerned about his testimony, but he had to admit, yes, yes, I regret to say in this circumstance that I am. The justice of peace said again, well, that'll be $15, but I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to pay that fine for you. I know who you are, and your preaching has been a significant help to my family. So he took a $5 bill and a $10 bill from his wallet. He placed them in the cash box and he closed it. He told the evangelist to be on his way. A law was broken, a fine was assessed, and a penalty was paid. You know, that's a pretty accurate illustration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every one of us, without exception, are guilty of breaking God's law. God has established a penalty, and the penalty for our law-breaking, the penalty for our sin, was paid when Jesus died on Calvary's cross. I didn't always understand this. I did not grow up going to church, going to Sunday school. I remember one particular day I was home. It was rainy outside. I was watching television. My mention of this is not endorsement of it, but I was watching an old Kirk Douglas movie called Spartacus. At the end of this dramatic and tragic movie, the main character, along with many others with him, are crucified. And this left me very confused. Again, I was probably 12 or 13 years of age. I had heard maybe somebody on television, somebody in a conversation, somebody somewhere said Jesus died for our sins on the cross. 
And as I was watching this movie, I realized something. I realized something that was obvious. Any student of history knows this, that crucifixion in ancient times was not an unusual or a rare form of execution. In human history, tragically, probably thousands and thousands died nailed to crosses. And that left me confused. I thought somehow the fact that Jesus died this, what I thought was unusual or unique death nailed to a cross, that that was significant, that was special, the way he died on the cross. But here in this movie, there's a depiction of other men dying on a cross, and again, Thousands did die that way. I didn't understand. Jesus died on a cross. And my reaction was, so what? But in the providence of God, when I was a high school teenager, somebody gave me a gospel tract, a simple pamphlet, and explained to me that when Jesus died, he died the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. And the Spirit of God illuminated my mind and helped me to understand that when Jesus died, it wasn't, it wasn't just that he died on a cross, but he was the Son of God, and he was the innocent Son of God. And he died on that cross as a substitute, the innocent, sinless Son of God, bearing my blame, suffering for my sin. He was my substitute. And then I understood. God ministered grace to my heart, and I trusted Jesus as my Savior. My story's a little odd. I didn't have anybody after I was saved initially to guide me. But I thought to myself, what do Christians do? Well, Christians read their Bible. I started reading my Bible. Christians pray, uh, so I started talking to God. Christians go to church, so I started going to church. I remember I went to Our Lady Queen of Martyrs. That was interesting. I remember I went to St. James Episcopal. These people must have thought I was a few fries short of a Happy Meal. I mean, really. I, I would ask for an appointment with the, uh, with the rector or the minister or the pastor. And I remember sitting in the office with an Episcopalian rector, and I began to ask him some questions. I asked him, why did Jesus die on the cross? I knew the answer. I learned it from that gospel tract and from the scripture. This Protestant minister said to me, well, he died on a cross to set a good example for us. My follow-up question was, well, did Jesus have to die in order for people to go to heaven? He said, no. Now, here's an ordained Protestant minister. Here's a credentialed graduate of a theological seminary, and with all of his education, he did not know why Jesus died. But in our text, we read about a man who was not schooled in theology. He never read the New Testament. It wasn't written when he lived. He may have never read the Old Testament. He was certainly not a Christian. But he understood, and he understood better than this, this Episcopalian rector that I mentioned. He understood exactly why Jesus died. Jesus, the innocent Son of God, died so that guilty sinners like you and guilty sinners like me could be pardoned. That's why Jesus died. The story of Barabbas is found in all four Gospels. Nowhere... 
in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, is this man's guilt anywhere questioned. He's identified in John 18, verse 40, as a robber. Luke 23, verse 19, calls him a murderer. Luke chapter 23, again, calls him a seditionist and an insurrectionist. Now, the Bible does not, does not include for us the details surrounding his crimes, but evidently this man Barabbas was the leader of some sort of terrorist plot against the Roman government in Jerusalem. And in carrying out this conspiracy, there was theft, there was robbery, there was killing, and of course there was an attempt to overthrow the sitting government. Now, we don't know what was stolen. We don't know how many people were killed. But we know, the Bible tells us, that these crimes happened. They weren't alleged. They were facts. They actually happened. And we know that Barabbas committed these crimes. His guilt was beyond question. The Bible says it's so. His circumstance is very similar to another man who died right next to Jesus. Jesus was crucified between two thieves. And one of these thieves said to Jesus, Remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. This same thief said of Jesus to the other thief on the other side of Christ, We indeed justly, but this man hath done nothing amiss. We are being executed fairly and justly because we are guilty. And the fact of the matter is this evening, whether you sense that guilt or whether you feel that guilt, apart from Jesus Christ, you stand completely guilty before God. There is no question. The blame is real. The responsibility is real. The sin is real. We may be guilty in different measures, and we may be guilty of committing different crimes, but we are all guilty of sinning before God. This man's condemnation, just like ours, was a just condemnation, and it was a settled condemnation. Luke chapter 23, in a parallel passage, in verse 19, says again, that Barabbas, for a certain sedition made in the city and for murder, was cast into prison. Now again, Barabbas was not imprisoned on suspicion. He was cast into prison for committing murder. He was cast into prison for committing robbery. He was cast into prison for sedition or rebellion. Evidently, whatever court proceedings or due process, a man in Barabbas' circumstance could expect at that time, in that culture, in that climate, whatever due process was due to him or his right, it had already taken place. This man was not imprisoned awaiting trial. This man was imprisoned awaiting the carrying out of the sentence of his crimes. He was awaiting execution. He wasn't in jail waiting for trial. He was on death row waiting to be executed. What does the Bible say about you? What does the Bible say about me? John chapter 3 and verse 18 says, He that believeth on him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already. 
Romans chapter 5, verse 18. Therefore, as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. And is it appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. We will not someday stand before God to have our eternal destiny determined. Your eternal destiny is determined right now. If Christ is your Savior, your eternal destiny is a home in heaven in the presence of the Almighty. If you do not know Jesus as your Savior, your eternal destiny is already established. It's already settled. The condemnation, the wrath of God rests upon you. And what waits for you is a certain looking for of condemnation, of fearful wrath. We're condemned. We're guilty. It's a just condemnation. It's a settled condemnation. And it's absolutely certain. What what was it that this man Barabbas could do to extricate himself? What could he do to liberate himself from this circumstance? Could he pay a fine? What could he do? He was guilty. He was condemned. He was awaiting execution. Apart from trusting Christ, what can I do to find forgiveness and reconciliation with God? Apart from Jesus Christ, what can you do to avoid condemnation and eternal wrath? The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, most of you can quote the verse, not of works, lest any man should boast. What is it that we can do? What work can we perform? What gift can we give? What ransom can we pay? What can we do to to extricate ourselves from this desperate situation? And the answer to that question is, there's absolutely nothing you can do. Apart from Christ, your condemnation, your eternal destiny in hell, it is a settled, confirmed matter. Apart from Jesus Christ, it won't be altered. We are condemned already. When I was in seminary, one of my professors said something to me that I remembered. I hope I remember more than one thing they said to me. But one of my professors said something to me I thought was profound, and I remembered all these many years. He said, one aid to biblical interpretation is a sanctified imagination. That's not all bad. Now, you should be very careful not to let your imagination run wild. But can we, for a moment, go back in our minds to the year 33 A.D., to the city of Jerusalem, to the fortress of Antonia, which was constructed by the Romans in gross disregard to the Jewish faith right next to their glorious temple that was built by King Herod. And underneath that fortress, deep within its bowels, is a prison cell. Four walls, stone, no windows, just one door locked. And in that cell is a man named Barabbas. Up above, outside the fortress, is an area known as the pavement. 
It's a place where Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, would establish his seat of judgment. He was sitting in judgment on this given day, and a great multitude, the Bible tells us, have have gathered around him. It was just before the Passover. And there was a tradition, in an effort to appease the mob and gain some sort of public sentiment, Pontius Pilate would release a guilty prisoner, hopes of gaining some sort of favor, some sort of sympathy with the people. And so this great multitude was gathered on this occasion, but the Bible tells us that the Pharisees had infiltrated this mob and they were trying to inspire this mob to ask not for Jesus to be released, but for Barabbas. And so Pilate sits upon the judgment seat and he speaks, his single voice carrying out so that the crowd can hear him. Whom, whom, will, you, I, whom will you have me release unto you? Down in the bowels of the fortress of Antonia, down in the prison cells, of course, separated by distance, barred by stone, the single voice of Pontius Pilate could not be heard. But up above, there was in addition to Pilate, as we said already, a great multitude, thousands of people. And the Bible tells us specifically in Matthew, in all four gospel accounts, but in Matthew, as he asks, who should we release? They said, verse 21, Barabbas! Barabbas! Thousands of voices begin to cry out, Barabbas! And down in his cell, this convicted, condemned man who was awaiting his execution could hear his name. I can imagine his blood ran cold. What did this mean? What was happening? He could hear the crowd, Barabbas! They called his name. Pilate stilled the crowd. Well, what then? What then shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? And again, because of the distance, no doubt Barabbas could not hear this singular voice. But in answer to Pilate's question, the thousands began to cry out again, Crucify him! Crucify him! And so here's Barabbas, condemned and guilty, imprisoned, He hears his name called out by the crowd, Barabbas! Barabbas! And then he hears the crowd crying out again, Crucify him! Crucify him! And then the crowd cries out a third time. After Pilate says, says, I'm innocent, the blood of this just man, and he washes his hands. And the crowd shouts, His blood be on us! So Barabbas hears the crowd crying for his name, shouting, Crucify him! Shouting, His blood be on us! And then after a long, tense, dramatic delay, he hears another sound. 
the sound of the hobnails and the bottom of the Roman soldier's sandals tromping towards the door of his cell. The tumblers in the lock turn and the door scraping open. And then liberty, freedom. It was Pilate's weakness, Pilate's foolishness that combined with the plotting of religious leaders along with the the whim of an uncertain mob that resulted in Barabbas being set free, but it's much more than that. It was Jesus himself that caused Barabbas to be liberated. Again, it was the tradition, the Roman governor, to release a prisoner at the Passover. The crowd was demanding their annual grant. And here was an opportunity for Pilate to frustrate the religious leaders that he despised, that he saw as opponents. You know, just days before, just days before, the multitude was celebrating Christ and shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna to the King as he rode into Jerusalem. But now this same crowd was crying for his blood, crucify him. So instead of Jesus, Barabbas, and to the cross, instead of Barabbas, Jesus. We have right here in the scripture the doctrine of redemption depicted, illustrated in vivid detail as it was carried out in actuality. Barabbas, the guilty, condemned man, went free because Jesus, the innocent, died in his place. And Jesus was innocent. As clear and as settled as the guilt of Barabbas was, surely the innocence of Christ is beyond dispute. In Matthew's account, Pilate's wife sends to him and tells the treacherous Roman governor, have nothing to do with this just man. Pilate, whose responsibility was to enforce justice, asked the crowd, what evil hath he done? In Luke's account, Pilate said to the crowd, I find no fault in him. I, having examined him before you, have found no fault in this man, touching those things whereof you accuse him. Again, he said, I have found no cause of death in him. In John's account, Pilate declares, I find no fault in him at all. He found no fault in Jesus because there was no fault to find. Judas, who betrayed him, said of Jesus, I have sinned in that I have, I have betrayed the innocent blood. Again, one of the thieves crucified with Christ said, this man hath done nothing amiss. One of the centurions that crucified Christ said, surely this was a just man. Peter, who lived with Jesus, followed Jesus, watched Jesus for three and a half years, said of him, he did no sin. Neither was guile or deceit found in his mouth. Jesus himself asked a hostile crowd, which of you convinceth me of sin? 2 Corinthians chapter 5 tells us that Jesus knew no sin. Hebrews chapter 4 tells us he was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. 1 John chapter 3 verse 5, in him 
is no sin. Jesus Christ was absolutely sinless. Jesus Christ was absolutely just. He was absolutely pure. He was holy, harmless, separate from sinners. He was absolutely guilt-free, and yet he was the one who was condemned. He was the one who died. I read a book some years ago entitled The Best of Billy Sunday. Transcribed sermons from the early 20th century revivalist. This story, I think, partly for the drama, partly for the point, and partly because the story took place near my hometown, Detroit, Michigan, kind of caught my attention. He said there was a drunken sailor one day staggering up Woodward Avenue in Detroit. He had just disembarked from his cargo ship, bleary-eyed, mind-clouded with liquor, he saw a sign just outside the Detroit Opera House. It said, Christ before Pilate. This drunken sailor had a Christian mother who prayed for him, whose heart he had broken. And when he left home for the very last time, the last thing that his mother said to him was, I will pray for you that you find Christ. And so as he was staggering in his drunken, drunken stupor up, Woodward Avenue in Detroit, he saw that sign, Christ before Pilate. And he went up to the window of the opera house. He says, is Christ here? On display was a famous painting entitled Christ before Pilate. And the woman behind the window said, well, the painting, Christ before Pilate, is here. Well, I'd like to see it. So he paid his fare and he was admitted. He went and he sat down on a bench and he stared at the painting. He winced his bleary, drunken eyes. Obviously, the people working there knew that there was a problem with this man. But he talked to them. He said, he said, he said who, who, is, who is this? Well, the man with the robe and the crown of thorns, that's Christ. Who's the guy with the short haircut? Well, that's the Roman governor, Pilate. And who are all those other fellows around standing in the robes? Well, those are the Pharisees who are there to accuse Jesus. Well, who's that fellow there with a spear in his hand? That's a Roman centurion. He's keeping the mob back. They're trying to kill Jesus. What are they What are they doing trying to kill Jesus? Well, they're crying, crucify him, crucify him. What did he do? He didn't do anything. He was innocent. And they left the man sitting there on the bench, staring at the painting. And after a while they came back, he was still there. He'd removed his hat from his head, and warm tears were dripping down his cheeks. And it seemed perhaps it was the work of God in his heart and his mind, the the, the drunkenness had begun to evaporate and he began to think a little clearly. He said, I never understood before. My mother loves him so. He never did anything wrong, did he? And they killed him anyway. I've done so many things wrong. My mother wanted me to find Jesus. And I think, I think maybe I have. 
And he got up and he left. And according to Sunday's story, he went back home to his mother. And he never drank again. He lived a Christian life. He saw Jesus as he was, sinless, innocent, and yet condemned. And he saw himself as he was, guilty, vile, and helpless we. The hymn narrator wrote, spotless lamb of God was he. Barabbas walked away a free man while Jesus walked to Calvary, a condemned man. Barabbas lived while Jesus died on a cross. A cross that was hewn and hoisted, not for Jesus, but for Barabbas. Jesus was very much Barabbas' substitute. What does the Bible tell us of Jesus? He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. God in his infinite wisdom and in his majestic grace, though it was 2,000 years ago, he took your sin, your personal, individual sin, your guilt, your blame, and he put it on his own son. And he who knew no sin became sin for you that you might be made the righteousness of God in him. Barabbas went free. Jesus died. What did Barabbas do to, to bring this equation, to bring this event to pass? What did he contribute? What part did he have in this? And the answer is nothing. He had nothing to do with this. And yet he was set free. Jesus died in his place. What about you? What do you have to do with this equation? What contribution can you make to your forgiveness, your reconciliation to God, to your salvation? And the answer is there's nothing you can do. We are, we are redeemed and reconciled through the blood of Jesus Christ and that alone. There is nothing we do. We simply trust. We repent and put our faith in Him. And what Jesus did on the cross, the merits of His substitutionary death, it provides for us release and liberation and forgiveness. I know where I am tonight. I'm at Maranatha Baptist University. And I know to whom I'm preaching certainly not trying to stroke anybody's ego tonight, but I'm preaching to some of the finest Christian young people in America. Thank God that you're here. That's why you're here. I know some of you, some of you turned down scholarships to state universities because you wanted to get a Christian education. I commend you for that, and I appreciate that. But you're here at this most unusual place because of your commitment to Christ. But there isn't a doubt in my mind that in a crowd this big, there are some young people here, and you've not trusted Christ as Savior. You've grown up in Christian homes. Maybe you went to a Christian school. You come from fine churches. But for you, for you personally, 
you've never embraced Jesus Christ. You've never repented of your sins. I've referenced a couple of times my summers when I was in college traveling with the Neighborhood Bible Time evangelistic team. My second week out, summer of 1984, I know, back when Abe Lincoln was president. Back in 1984, I was in southern Colorado. Don't think of mountains. This was big sky country down near the Oklahoma panhandle. It was in a town called Lamar. It was Thursday night. Thursday night in neighborhood Bible time, we used to have a teen event called the Destination Unknown. Do you know where the destination was? It was unknown. It's a secret destination. We'd take teenagers maybe to a farmer's field. One time we had a DU on a golf course. You ever play football on a golf course? I don't think the greenskeepers appreciated, but we had a great time. It was DU night. We had probably 90 or 100 teenagers there in Lamar, Colorado. And after the games, we had some, we had a cookout roasting hot dogs, marshmallows, a bonfire, and then preaching. And I'll never forget the most extraordinary thing happened. After the preaching, we gave an old-fashioned invitation. Is there a young person here who's never trusted Jesus Christ? Why don't you come forward, meet with a counselor, let them answer your questions, pray with you, lead you to Jesus. And I don't remember how many, but there were a few teenagers that got saved that night. But there was a fellow who wasn't a teenager. He stepped up, he said, I, I need to get saved. He was a graduate of Pillsbury Baptist Bible College. He was a youth pastor of the church. And he said, all my life, he said, I've wrestled with this. I grew up in a Christian home. I... I've just never settled it for myself. I put it off. I was embarrassed. I was ashamed. I, I can't do that any longer. I've got to get this right. I need to get saved. I don't know that that's common. But I wouldn't be at all surprised if there's some young people here at Maranatha Baptist University tonight. And it's time for you to settle this. You know in your heart and your mind that it's never been settled for you. It's time to be reconciled to God. It's time to trust in Jesus as your Savior. He died for you. He loves you. He was raised again from the dead, and He invites you to trust in Him. Don't bury it anymore. Don't put it off. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, if there is doubt about your relationship with God, come to Jesus. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Come to Jesus. He died for you. Come to Jesus and trust in Him tonight. Can we bow our heads and close our eyes? Our heads bowed and eyes closed tonight. Just a couple of quick questions. Say, preacher, you were preaching to me tonight. God has spoken to my heart. I'm not saved, and I know it. I, maybe you could say I prayed a prayer when I was five years old, but I didn't understand. I didn't, I didn't know what I was doing. I don't believe I'm truly born again. I don't believe I know Jesus as my Savior. And I want to settle that tonight. Right there where you are. Don't worry about the person next to you. Be concerned about yourself and about God. Say, I've never trusted Christ in sincerity. I want to settle it tonight. Would you raise your hand up so I can see it? Raise it up. I need to get saved tonight. Just raise it up so I can see it. 
I want to pray for you. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to point you out. I want to get saved tonight. I want to settle this once and forever tonight. I want to trust in Christ. Second question, someone here tonight, you say, I have trust in Christ, but I battle so with assurance. I'm so vexed with doubts. I need assurance of my salvation. I, I want to stop the doubting and the wondering. I really want assurance of my salvation. Pray for me, preacher. I really doubt. I'm not sure. If that's you, would you raise your hand tonight? I just don't know. Thank you. Thank you. God bless you. Thank you. I appreciate your honesty. I appreciate your willingness. You can put your hand down. Thank you. In just a moment, we're going to sing a verse of an invitation song. And if you raised your hand or if you didn't raise your hand, this is so important. There's nothing more important than this. There's nothing more important than your relationship with God and your eternal destiny. If you have a doubt, you have a question, whether you raise your hand or not, and I'm going to pray for those that raise their hand tonight, but whether you raise your hand or not, I want to invite you to slip out of your seat and come. Don't worry about your friends. Don't worry about your, your classmates. Don't worry about what they think. Just make your way down here to the front, and someone will greet you, and someone will help you, help you to come to know Jesus, come to know assurance of your salvation. Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus' death on the cross. Thank you that Jesus died for all mankind. And thank you that he died for me. I pray, Heavenly Father, that every one of these young people, adults as well, faculty and staff, that we would have joyful assurance of our forgiveness and our reconciliation to God, that we would have joyful assurance that we know Jesus as our Savior and that we're born again. For these that raised a hand tonight, I pray, Father, that you would dispatch the clouds of doubt and give them assurance and peace. Thank you for Christ. Work in our hearts tonight and have your own way. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.